before we begin, I want to let parents who might be listening with young children know that we'll be discussing adult situations and products in this episode. Welcome back to Material World, where we break down all the stories behind the stuff you spend your money on. We're your hosts. I'm Lindsay Rupp. I write about all the stores you'll find in the mall for Bloomberg News. And I'm Jenny Kaplan. I write about all the things you drink and smoke while probably avoiding going to the mall. Jenny, I think we need to have the talk. Oh, no. By that, I mean we need to talk about the global sex toy market. Ah, That's right. Some estimates actually put this industry at around $15 billion and growing. For a long time, it seemed like this was a market completely in the dark, shrouded in shame and secrecy. No one talked about it, and few publicly owned up to being customers. But that's all changed. That's true. We're living in a much more sex-positive time, despite our country's puritanical roots. I bet a lot of people remember this 1998 Sex in the City clip. Uh oh, sounds like somebody just got their first vibrator. Not first, ultimate. And I think I'm in love. Oh, please stop. This is so sad. Come on, I'm not going to replace a man with some battery yeah, operated you device. You say that, but you haven't met the rabbit. Oh, come on. If you're going to get a vibrator, at least get one called The Horse. An edgy show like Sex in the City talked about vibrators on HBO, but otherwise it was rare to say the least. But now, sex toys are all over pop culture in rom-coms and TV shows, not to mention the Fifty Shades of Grey books and movie, which got quite a reaction, as you can hear from this Inside Edition clip. Fans of Fifty Shades of Grey got a chance to watch the steamy movie ahead of its Valentine's Day release, and I got some reactions from the ladies after the screening. The sex in it was wonderful. The room, everything. And their chemistry together was phenomenal. It's very enlightening. So the red room is where all the whips and chains and everything is. I hope the second one comes out soon. And in real life, these products are more common too. I'm at an age where just about everybody I know is getting married and I keep hearing about lingerie and sex toy themed bridal showers. Even at CVS, Walmart and Target you can get some pleasure focused products. These stores wouldn't be stocking them if people, and it seems to be a lot of women, weren't buying them. In 2005, every three out of 10 women had a vibrator. In 2014, that was seven. Wow, and that's just in the US. That's right, and if you look at the global market, it's projected to increase on an annual rate of you know, double digits. That's our colleague, Jing Cao, a reporter at Bloomberg who covers the tech industry. She did some research into how technology has changed this industry. There are some really interesting new um, devices that are coming out. There are things that are connected to your phone. I don't know how well they work, but apparently there are certain ones that connect to your phone and record um, data on how well you orgasm or how much you're enjoying this toy and will actually adjust the, I guess, type of vibration or or whatever it's doing based on um, the data that it's collected. Wow, very high tech. And how has it changed the way that people buy these products? 
Sure. Uh, well, with you know the rise of the internet and mo- and mobile, um, two things have happened. I think one is that there are a bunch of sex bloggers out there. They actually reach out to companies, um, get samples, and test them out, and write these really long and extensive and very very detailed reviews about um, the experience with this toy. And then the second thing is, you know, discretion is always key, and you can buy from online stores, whether it's Amazon, whether it's, you know, the actual uh, toy shops online, and they'll come in very discreet packaging, and you don't have to, you know, worry about, I don't know, embarrassment or whatever that, you, you know, people worried about. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's take a step back to a time when it was a lot harder to find these products, even if you admitted that you wanted them. In 1970, Phil Harvey, a graduate student at the University of North Carolina's School of Public Health, launched a mail-order condom business as part of his graduate thesis. The company grew from a catalog into the 62-store Adam and Eve chain, one of the largest adult product companies in the U.S. In the 80s, Adam and Eve found itself fighting against more than just prudish natures. The federal government raided the company's offices in 1986, and Phil Harvey spent six years defending himself against indictments for obscenity. The company survived those legal battles and continued to grow, even getting into the X-rated video market. While the internet has made adult videos a lot less profitable, Adam and Eve is responding to a major shift in who the customers for adult products are and what they want. The, the nature of the business has been changed by the revolutionary uh, availability of pornography on the internet. But uh, on the other hand, there has been a very gratifying and, and uh, I would say, wonderful uh, increase in interest uh, in sex toys. Um, uh, we did not, when this business began in the 80s and 90s, see anything like the demand for vibrators. Uh, that is relatively new, uh, at least in my lifetime, and uh, we've been very happy to uh, to respond to that market demand and now sell all nature of sex toys that uh, that enhance sexual pleasure. There are certainly more women buyers, and I was very surprised to see in the early days of Internet buying that the percentage of buyers uh, were more female than uh, among uh, uh, catalog buyers. So there has been that uh, demographic change, but I think it's, it goes further than that. I think the last 20, 30 years have seen a major increase in women's rights, in women's uh, view of their own sexuality uh, as something uh, positive and something to which they have as much right uh, as men. And uh, I think that the, the, the male half of the population has been happy to go along with that. We sell a lot of vibrators and other toys to both sexes. And I think that is relatively new, and it is, I think, very, very healthy and very, very good. American attitudes were changing in the 1990s, just a few years after Phil Harvey fought for Adam and Eve's survival. Claire Kavanaugh and Rachel Venning say they saw an opportunity to build a comfortable place for women to find higher quality sex toys. 
They founded Babelin in Seattle in 1993 and later expanded to New York. I asked a friend for money, and um, we got, I can tell you how much, $10,000 from her. Wow. And Rachel had some money, and I think she borrowed some. So we opened on $18,000. Claire joined us in the studio to talk about founding Babeland and how the sex toy industry has changed since doing so. The mainstream sex stores at the time, and even now, have this aura of shame around them and treat it was mainly about like feminism really i mean mm -hmm. they just treat women like objects and i really took that personally and <laughs> just wanted to sort of explore like sexual agency for women mm -hmm. and that's really what babeland has so we wanted it to be different so we took all the packaging off of the toys and then displayed them without the basically quasi-pornographic kind of imagery, like explicit airbrushed women, you know. Um, what I understood my friends wanting and me wanting um, just didn't exist, you know, not in those stores and, you know, not anywhere that I knew of. So that's what we made. We made the place we would shop in. Do you think that the industry in general is changing? I mean, like, do you think that the way that people see sex toys has evolved? Yes, definitely. We've been at this for about 24 years. And um, early on, it was like I was describing the packaging. The toys within the packaging were also low quality. I mean, they're, they're fine. We sold them. People had orgasms with them probably and had fun. But there wasn't a lot of um, technology or, or like real innovation going into them because they were shameful to have. Um, you know, I mean, it used to be like a, a cylinder of plastic with a vibrator in the end or in the middle and then the C batteries would go in the end and that was the best you could do for like an internal vibrator that was basically safe to use. There were a lot of like mystery rubber kind of <laughs> toys that were, you know, we would just say put a condom on that because the, the color would like leach out into oh. the packaging and stuff. You know, it, it was not good times, but the, but I, the way that we sold them and the information that we gave out and the sort of atmosphere of openness that we created, um, I think, made up for the quality of toys. And now there's no reason to make up for it. The quality is fantastic. You said that there's still a stigma in the industry. I mean, you, you've seen it shift, though. What do you mm -hmm. think is driving that that change, and, and what will it take for, for sort of the stigma to fall away even further? I mean, really, truthfully, I think places like Babeland have had an effect. And we are also benefiting from that. You know, it's sort of like a virtuous circle happening. Um, so the more... I mean, a lot of women knew vibrators would get them off and would venture into those stores and find that out about themselves. Um, but the more places there were to go to get good vibrators, the more women were having better sex and, you know, their first orgasm, many more orgasms, bigger orgasms. And that's pretty compelling. And women talk to each other, you know, more and more about that um, you know the other big thing that's changed is that the internet has happened. <laughs> we, that's a huge, <laughs> huge factor. When we opened, there was nowhere easy to find out about sex or to buy sex toys that are, um, you know, high quality and that you where someone would tell you how to use it. You know, really in earnest. Um, there have been some high-profile um, uh, popular culture 
uh, moments. Yeah, so like the vibrator moment in Sex and the City, yeah. we talked about that a little bit. That is a really big one. And, um, and, I, and I think that women have a lot of buying power mm-hmm. and are just more and more kind of understanding that they can ask for what they want and they can have better sex. the business is legal and growing, the stigma surrounding sex presents challenges, particularly with banking. We have tried to grow and um, we got our one line of credit taken away when they, it was so, it was ridiculous. It was our, our bank in Seattle that we, and you know, every retailer, little retailer needs a line of credit for right. those you know, seasons when you need that, you've paid it back and it's just great to have. And we used it for about 10 years probably and they came in and took it away because we sell vibrators and this was the bank that does our credit card processing and um you know our depository accounts and all everything and it was it's just every so often we get some kind of audit happens and new a new light is shed for somebody in power on what we do and then things change and get they shrink to better understand the bank's perspective in all of this, we talked with banking consultant Bert Ely. Yeah, it's what they call de-risking. Uh, it's a very controversial uh, uh, practice uh, that um, you know the regulators claim they uh, they don't do it. Uh, there have actually been a couple of congressional hearings, on, I think, on the House side uh, with it. But they the the concern is that if banks do business with certain types of business, that does, that does what's known as reputational damage to the, to the bank. This is a kind of a regulatory term that's developed over the last decade or two. And so, you know, the regulators are, are, are trying to protect banks from certain kinds of customers. A lot of this goes back to criminal activity in one way or another, uh, either in terms of doing business with uh, people that are, uh, in the money laundering business or uh, dealing with illegal drugs or, or, or prostitution, you know, a variety of, uh, of activities that, that are clearly illegal. What's uh, ironic is that a number of lawful, legitimate businesses are being swept into this. I hadn't thought about the adult device mix. I love that term. Uh, what, the, what the bankers want to avoid is having to explain what the nature of the business is uh, and, and to defend having a particular type of customer because it just isn't worthwhile. Uh, they don't make enough on these particular accounts to, you know, spend a lot of uh, specialist time or executive time, you know, trying to defend the, uh, you know, the particular customer relationship. It's a very unfortunate situation, uh, you know, primitive to basically people, force people to operate in, a, in an all-cash economy, particularly where in many situations increasingly you can't pay with the, uh, the green stuff anyway. Our bank pretty much fired us, stopped doing business with us. They're like, get all of your money out in 90 days. And I got on the phone with (laughs) my banker and like, can I talk to your boss? Can I talk to your boss? Can I talk to your boss? I just wanted to know why. And I did know why. You know, I know it's because we sell sex toys, but I wanted to hear them say it. And nobody would. It's like someone breaking up with you. Like, they don't have to tell you why, (laughs) you know? And it's terrible. And you just live with the grief of not knowing. It was so, so... It, it made me crazy. Babeland has been able to expand its business and get the word out through the rise of the internet. 
and that's helped potential customers discreetly learn about and order these products. That makes it a lot easier for companies to get into the industry compared to when Adam and Eve's Phil Harvey launched through a catalog. Today, he's more worried about competition from players like Bayland or even Amazon than federal raids. There uh, is continuous increase in uh, the number of, and quality of competitors, I would say, and we've had to to uh, be pretty smart, stay ahead of the curve um, technologically. I, I think we've done uh, uh, pretty well. But uh, we do now about 70% of our business on the Internet so that um, uh, we're a mail-order company, I guess, technically still. Uh, but a great deal of, uh, of the orders coming in come into our website. Uh, that is something that happened gradually. I believe it was in 2001 or two uh, when revenue from... Uh, from the website exceeded revenue from catalog mailings and, uh, and uh, telephone orders. For a little perspective, doing 70% of your sales online is rare in retail. Most apparel companies get about 20% of their sales through the internet. And even for a company with a rich catalog heritage like Williams-Sonoma, which also owns the Pottery Barn brands, they only do about half of their sales online. Women do the bulk of household purchasing in the U.S. They're demanding better products and speaking more openly about sex toys. But even now, sexual pleasure is a taboo, awkward topic that can leave people hoping to disrupt the industry facing a lot of challenges. Alex Fine and Janet Lieberman are two entrepreneurs throwing their hats into the ring. They raised more than $800,000 on the crowdfunding site Indiegogo to make Eva, which they call the first truly wearable couple's vibrator. Just like Babeland, they thought there was an opportunity to make a higher quality product. I, I mean, I'm a mechanical engineer by trade. I went to MIT. I spent about seven years doing different jobs within the field of getting products made before I realized that I was a consumer of a product category that didn't seem like it was as well engineered or made with the same rigor or provide the same value proposition as other consumer electronics. And that at the end of the day, for some reason, I had been thinking that that was okay or been expecting less out of sex toys than I did out of other consumer electronics. And that there was no reason for that. There was some part of my brain is that like I was supposed to be ashamed of using these products, so it was okay that they weren't great. Um, you know, sometimes they don't work, sometimes they use their interface didn't work, things like that. And I the thought to myself, like, I could do this better after buying one particular product and then I realized that was like true. That was what my background was in. I've been a quality engineer, I'd been done some project management, I've done some precision machine design and consumer product development and all sorts of things in between, and I realized I could pull that all together and try to do this better. How is the industry, the kinds of products that are out there, how have you seen that change since you launched your product? Well, this current wave of feminism that's going on right now, I think is really interesting in its impact on the sex toy industry. You know, um, something that started off very porn and male-focused and male-driven is having this kind of, I think, renaissance 
based on this intersection of, you know, women feeling empowered to feel like sexual beings and uh, us being aware that women have more buying power than for some reason we previously thought they had, even though they make up half of people. Well, third wave feminism is definitely a little bit more pro-sex than, you know, second wave. And I just, I do think that the way, um, like this postmodern ideas in general just make us kind of be a little bit more frank about like, oh, these are kind of things that we all do and why, and, and, and just at, at least acknowledging the fact that they're like social constructions that impact everything that we do, how we get financed and who is in the game and who, you know, what, what's the sophistication levels and op- like how, how do these companies operate? I know that y'all raised a lot of money on Indiegogo. I think it was like 1150% of the goal. I just looked it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, how has kind of like crowdfunding changed this industry? Yeah, it's made a huge impact. So in first of all, it's a hard good. So it's capital intensive to get a company like this off the ground. It's definitely difficult to get investors. Um, it's changing, but I think it's... Um, very similar to like cannabis in that some some investors are concerned about what other what their friends might think even though they're okay with it um and then of course there are lots of investors who are really excited and see the opportunity but crowdfunding has allowed allows you to really shadow test your product and see if it's viable and if there are people that are interested in buying it and um kind of just was we wouldn't have been able to get off the ground if it wasn't for crowdfunding we also can't advertise all the different ways that other small companies can Mm -hmm. so crowdfunding is a great way for an industry that can't as easily do retargeting or facebook ads or things like that to be able to expose people to your product you end up using pr a little bit yeah like you would want to be using advertising but indiegogo now like so we like so you can't we can't advertise on Facebook. There's a lot of ways that like the taboo of sex, you know, really impacts what we can and cannot do and how we can grow our business, which is crazy. You know, it's it, I just want to feel like we can get out there and make whatever happen that we want to happen and if we want to change the world, we can and it's been really interesting on this journey to learn about true barriers that we need to like break down and I can't just wake up and decide we're going to do it because there's other people who saying you can't do that. But even without that, mm-hmm. just the press from Indiegogo was pretty good. The crowdfunding campaign generated press, which was helped to get exposure. So online av- advertising is a big barrier for you. And what other barrier. barriers are you guys facing? You can't get SBA loans. That's that's one. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, I mean, you're thinking to yourself, like, I'm trying to create jobs and contribute to the economy. and But right. we make products of an indecent sexual nature. And then I, we try to be like, but government, we make products of a decent sexual nature. And they were like, ha, 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 sex is always indecent. What are you talking about? Changing the advertising rules would be huge. I think that would be the, the biggest barrier for us to reach more people and let them know that we exist um, to that 
feels like the most important thing to change right now. Because I would say, I mean, and the thing before that is is just how we're thinking about sexuality as a culture. Like, that's the biggest thing. And, like, feeling okay and, like, having conversations about it and awareness. And, you know, it, it is something that impacts people's egos and how they feel about their ability to perform. And, you know, there's a lot of myths around it and there's just a lot, I mean, there's just a lot of myths around all sexuality. So I think it's changing. business might not exist without both the rise of the internet and the rise of a wave of feminism driving demand for new and better products. But for companies that have been around a long time, like Adam and Eve, a more crowded market means slower sales growth. Growth, I think, uh, in many, many business lines in the United States today is not likely to be explosive, except in particular technical areas. I think that uh, what we're in is a very solid business. It's going to continue to grow, but uh, I don't see uh, I, I, I don't see any dramatic uh, changes in the landscape that are going to double or triple our business in the next couple of years. I think we have to be satisfied with uh, uh, with with growing steadily and remaining profitable, um, and, and that seems to me like a, uh, a reasonably good scenario. Even for companies like Adam and Eve, though, this is an industry that's likely to continue to grow. One snapshot to illustrate demand, Amazon has 60,000 adult items in stock, according to one report in May. Still, it's a tough business to be in, dogged by squeamishness and problems with banking and advertising. The women of Babeland and Dame compared the obstacles in their industry to those facing businesses struggling to navigate the new legal cannabis market. One difference, though, sex toys are federally legal. I, I think there's something a little bit easier for marijuana where there's this law that people are like, oh, we can turn this law off or we can change this law. I just I think that um, to a certain degree, marijuana might feel weirdly safer because it's a little, it's a lot more cut and dry. Everyone has so much baggage they bring to the table whenever you're discussing sex, mm -hmm. and that affects a lot of aspects of our business. But you don't have a lot of baggage when it comes to marijuana. It doesn't have the same psychological impact that sex does, so it doesn't have as many weird colors to how you're discussing it. And even though the U.S. is the biggest market for this industry, it's certainly not the only place entrepreneurs have an opportunity to make money, as our colleague Jing points out. Right now, um, I mean, U.S. right now is for sure one of the biggest markets. But going to forward in the next like four or five years, you really want to be looking at sort of the Asia area. There's a lot of interest. In fact, the company that I was talking to, Noel, their investor is an is a Chinese life sciences investment firm. And the reason why they invested in Newell is because they want to bring their product to Asia because of the crazy amount of interest. But it seems it seems natural that Asia would be a big market considering how many people live in Asia. Exactly. There are a lot of people who live in Asia. Um, as the internet sort of opens up the world for them, I think there's a lot more sexual education going on. There's a lot more, there's a lot less uh, repression as people start to be connected with the rest of the world and start to talk about these kind of things.
That wraps it up for this episode of Material World. Thanks for listening. For more Material World, check out Bloomberg.com, iTunes.com slash Material World, the Bloomberg Terminal, or anywhere you find your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jenny M. Kaplan and Lindsay's at LC Rupp. You can learn more about Dame on Twitter at Dame Products. And you can also find out more about the stores in this episode at Adam and Eve and at Babeland underscore toys. But you might want to wait until after work hours. And if you're trying to avoid tweets that might be NSFW, you can check out our colleague Jing Cow at Jingle Bells Cow also. We'll be back in two weeks. No, we've certainly done podcasts. We we do um, something tricky with YouTube that I never understood.